and welcome to Unmanageable, news from the unruly people and places of Mendocino County, California. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. I've been away from the podcast for a couple of months, but I'm happy to be back and I have some really exciting personal news. I have been hired as the program director for the Redwood Forest Foundation, which is an amazing local nonprofit with the most understated name. It's also called REFI, which doesn't provide any more clues as to how cool it really is. I had heard about REFI back in the late 1990s when it was founded. as a dream or maybe a Hail Mary for the forest. The people who started it were some of the smartest, most principled, most effective local leaders I'd ever met. They came from a diversity of backgrounds, from environmentalists to the timber industry, the financial industry, and local electeds, but they were all deeply committed to the survival of our forests and the well-being of our local communities. As the multinational timber corporations liquidated the redwoods throughout Mendocino County, they were preparing to sell out to the highest bidder and leave the area. Refi's founders came together to see if they could actually buy the land, manage it not for corporate profits, but for the public good, and give the devastated forest a chance to recover. One of those visionaries was Art Harwood, a former mill owner and fellow veteran of what we in Mendocino County know as the Timber Wars. In November of 2021, I interviewed him about the past, present, and future of forestry in Mendocino County. He talked about Refi a lot during our conversation, and to be honest, what he was saying really captured my imagination. I was an Earth First organizer throughout the 1990s, and like Art, I saw firsthand the destruction happening in the Redwoods during that time both here in Mendocino and up in Humboldt County. I worked closely with Judy Berry on the Headwaters Forest campaign and also her civil rights lawsuit against the FBI and Oakland police, and heard her version of the stories that Art tells about the earth-first timber worker organizing around Redwood summer. She died of breast cancer in 1997, the same year Refi began. By some miracle, Art explained, in 2007, Refi did manage to acquire 50,000 acres formerly owned and logged by Georgia Pacific, called the Usal Redwood Forest, just east of the Cinqueon Wilderness State Park in northern Mendocino. Talking with Art planted a seed, and the more I learned about Refi and visited the Usal Redwood Forest, the more inspired I was to get involved and help our community work toward the vision of Refi's founders. I've played a shorter excerpt of this interview in the past. But for this episode of Unmanageable, here is my full, unedited conversation with Art Harwood from November 10th, 2021, about forestry in Mendocino County. My name is Art Harwood, and I am a lifelong resident of Mendocino County with pretty deep roots here. I did run one of the largest businesses, private businesses in Mendocino County, Harwood Products, which is a family-owned lumber mill, and have been involved uh, with a lot of community endeavors, and that's about it, I guess. So we want to talk today about the past, present, and future of forestry in Mendocino County because you have that kind of big picture view from your dad and granddad coming into the forest products industry, your many decades in it, and now your involvement with 
Refi and the, and looking toward the future, um, and you have sort of a, a unique perspective because you weren't part of the big timber companies. You were local with a a long history from your family, and you guys were trying to do it responsibly. Uh, and the forces of history just kind of came in and crashed around everybody and affected your family really strongly. <laughs> like basically, cl- the mill closed. Yeah. Uh, you know, what I, what I would say is that we, we, my family does and did have deep roots, uh, in, in the, uh, county. And so we did try to do everything, uh, as responsible as we could. Doesn't mean we were perfect because, you know, the reality is you learn over time and nobody knows what perfect really is even today, but we did the best we could. And we certainly were swept up by events uh, that were beyond our control and, and um, made it impossible to really, you know, continue being in the forest products business. But that's the way the world works. And so uh, it's all okay. And <laughs> here I am. So, and you're still here. I'm you still didn't, here. Like, stop <laughs> being here just because the company went out of business that is correct um so let's start with the story of how your family got involved in forestry well um my family got involved in forestry i guess i guess if i really wanted to go way back um my family did come across the plains in covered wagons and settled in ukiah valley they uh were the york family and there's uh, york creek north of ukiah that's named after them and the old ranch is still there, not owned by my family, but the old ranch house where my both my grandmother and my father were born in the same room in the same house still stands. You can see it from the freeway when you drive by. Um, so that part of the family used to, the earliest story I have of being in the forest products was in the winter time, or it's probably the spring when the bark was loose, used to harvest tan bark. And they would harvest tan bark and haul it on, uh, you know, by wagon, mule-drawn wagon, I guess, or maybe just mules, I'm not sure, and sell it. So that was kind of the earliest forest products. Uh, From that, uh, that was my grandmother's family, and she ended up being a school teacher, taught uh, in Mina, of all places. Mina. Yeah. Is... Very remote. <laughs> Very remote. <laughs> it's like east of Kovalo. Uh, and so she um, uh, she married my grandfather, who was born and raised in Oakland, moved here to Laytonville, and they got married and started some businesses in Laytonville, and uh, Laytonville Inn was one of them. But uh, what they did is they moved to Branscombe. My father, who... Uh, was really the impetus for the forest products. Um, graduated from Laytonville High School, second graduating class ever from Laytonville High School. That was in what year? That was in probably around 1942 or three. And so he, immediately upon graduation, he joined the Navy because World War II was going on and uh, he was going to be uh, fly uh, airplanes off of carriers, but 
the war ended, and so he didn't have to do that. And he got out of the Navy, uh, went on to college, Santa Rosa Junior College, and UC Berkeley, got a degree in business, um, yeah, and met uh, my mom there. But in the t- during the time when he left to join the Navy and went off to college, my grandparents moved from Laytonville to Branscombe, where they they bought out the holdings of John Branscombe, who founded Branscombe in the 1880s, built a Branscombe store, which still stands. And so during during the uh, so this is well, the, so for people who don't know Mendocino very well, Branscombe's a little bit off the beaten path too. Uh, well, I always refer to Branscombe as the center of the universe, and it's hard to dispute that. Fair enough. It's certainly the center of Mendocino County. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the center of the universe if you live in Branscombe. Or it's the halfway point between the coast and Laytonville. There you go. Uh, Yeah, so if you drive up Highway 101 to Laytonville and hang a left or go west, um... It is halfway between Laytonville and Westport, essentially. So Another booming metropolis. Yeah, so when I go grocery shopping, I, I go to uh, maybe Fort Bragg. It's the same as Willits. And um, so it's kind of nice. You know, it's, yeah. it's handy. What kind of a town is Branscombe? Well, Branscombe's really evolved. And right now, it is just not much uh, because when the mill went away, there's really not much there, but cannabis and most of that's illegal cannabis and so uh, not much going on in Branscombe but people scattered around the woods but when I was growing up it was a mill town and there were probably at one time 20 to 30 sawmills in Branscombe but they were little mills and um, when my my grandparents moved there and bought the Branscombe store they they actually started a remanufacturing plant, a planing mill, to service all the little sawmills because the little sawmills would produce lumber, but they had no way of processing it. So they brought it to a central processing place, and uh, my grandfather could process it for them and then ship it you know, into the, into the market. And when my father got out of uh, UC Berkeley, he went to work for Union Lumber Company in Fort Bragg, and he learned to be a lumber grader. And he was a certified lumber grader. And so to, to process lumber and sell it into the market, you needed to be able to put a stamp on it, mm-hmm. which told you the, tells you the structural integrity of the piece. And so he learned to do that. And then he, uh, my grandfather made him an offer to be his business partner, and he came back to Branscombe. Married my mother, who was a year, a couple years behind him at UC Berkeley, and uh, and went into the lumber business. So they had this planing mill, and then they built a small uh, sawmill. And over time, um, you know, our family mill kind of prospered, and the other mills. Uh, it's really the story of the lumber industry uh, on a global basis. I mean the the small inefficient mills um, go by the wayside and the more efficient ones prosper. And uh, even today that is true. And so where our mill was uh, fairly efficient at one time, it became inefficient. And the, uh, the amount of capital, you know, to, to have an efficient mill is staggering. I mean, wow. I mean, you're not going to do it for a hundred million dollars. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a lot of money. What's an efficient 
mill versus an inefficient mill? Well, an efficient mill has high recovery, which means that they recover more out of every log than mills that don't have high recovery. So that's number one, and that's a huge... So you get more lumber out of each log. That is correct. That, that makes sense. That, that is that's a huge thing. And then they have low costs. And so the combination of high recovery and low costs are huge. And, and I know that people lament that, you know, that that's the way it is. But what I would say is that when in the lumber industry, we're dealing in a global economy. And to compete in a global economy, if you don't have mills that can have high recovery and low costs, you can't compete. And where that really makes a difference is how much the mills can afford to pay a timberland owner for their logs. And so for a timberland owner, the more you can get for your logs, then the better job you can do of managing your forest. So it really is when it comes down to, um, how people manage their forests, it is really important to have high recovery, low cost, very efficient mills. And I know that there's was always, particularly in the environmental movement, it was like, well, you know, you're you're automating the jobs away, which is true. But if you don't do that, you're going to have nothing mm -hmm. because you got to be able to compete. So is that where a lot of the cost savings happens is with labor costs? Yes, labor costs. So it's like if you can produce, as an example, when our mill went out of business, we were producing lumber for about probably $120 a thousand board feet, and which was not real efficient, but it wasn't super bad. But a good efficient mill was producing lumber for less than $60 a thousand board feet. So they were producing lumber for one half what we were. And then they were recovering probably, you know, twice as much as us. And when you do the math huh. on that, uh, that works out to several hundred dollars a thousand more value when you take it back yeah. to what a tree was worth how just since we're talking about this i how do you recover more from a log well you have uh thinner saws oh i see so a lot of it gets eaten up in the sawdust that is correct okay you have uh machinery that cuts more accurately so computers are involved here yes robotics yes mm-hmm and uh yeah and it's scanners and i mean it's uh it's all space age high tech stuff. lots of math it sounds like lots of math so and that's all about making timber production profitable that is correct all right well let's get back to your family because okay. that was really interesting <laughs> <All right. laughs> and each of these issues leads to these larger conversations so i think that's good but um so your family is now your dad has teamed up with your grandpa yeah. and they are producing finished timber products in branscombe and the smaller mills are starting to go under is your family absorbing uh, the business and any kind of timber land or anything like that? Uh, we were not buying timber land during that time. 
And but you know we were what logs were available were flowing to our our sawmill as other mills uh, went down. A lot of the mills just burnt down, and then people really well yeah because that was that was how most of them went. And they were all real small mills. Was and, it accidental fires or? Uh, yeah. Okay. I don't think anybody had insurance. Nobody was like, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that I'm sure that happened. But <laughs> I don't think in those days, you know, mills burnt down all the time. So um, Is that just because there's so much dry wood around? Yeah. And sparks? you had these teepee burners. What's a teepee burner? Teepee burner is an old metal burner that looks like a teepee. So like a, uh, and they could be maybe... 20, 30 feet tall and maybe 20, 30 feet in diameter. And they have a little crossed wires on the top and they sort of look like rusted corrugated metal. Okay, so those are all over the county. Yes, that's old. Everywhere you see one is an old sawmill or some sort of wood products uh, processing site. And they would just get rid of the waste there? Yeah, you'd burn it because it was not worth anything. You had to do something with it and... And the reality is, right now, as we speak today, and and uh, you know, as I get into what I, when I get into when I think the future might look like, uh, the biggest problem right now is getting rid of the wood waste. There is no market uh-huh. to get rid of the waste, and so it's, uh, what are you going to do with it? So uh, Mendocino Redwood, as an example, has they have put in a pellet plant, which is. I guess somewhat controversial. Right, in, that's in Calpella. In Calpella. Yep. So that's one way to get rid of waste. But, you know, pellet plants take money and they take products. So if you're a small operator, you, you don't have the money or the product to uh, put in a pellet plant. And so there really is no market. I mean, there's a market for, um, you know, a lot of it, particularly redwood, has gone into uh soil amendments but you know that market is just flooded so i mean it's it's a problem for people i mean there aren't that many small operators but the ones there are it it is a problem getting rid of Mm -hmm. the waste so i don't know maybe you go back to a tp burner at some time i mean one of the things that that i had worked on was um trying to to come up and and build a uh, kind of a smaller, lower-cost cogeneration plant that would produce electricity. Right. And there's still work being done in California, but but the fact is that uh, the largest en- energy producer in our region, PG&E, does not like those plants. They don't want them, and and you know that basically the state PUC is still. <laughs> it's still controlled by the PG&E, so mm-hmm. well, it uh, sounds like happened. those cogen plants aren't particularly efficient in terms of the carbon released for the amount of energy that you get. Well, they're more efficient than um, uh, I don't know that I would agree with that, but you may know stuff that I don't. That's what I've heard. That I don't know. Uh, I think there are some efficiencies, mm-hmm. and you know. The, not not the least of which is you do produce energy, mm-hmm. which is important. It does put um, economics into taking old dead trees out of the forests, which uh, matters. They do produce biochar, which I think could be the salvation of our planet mm-hmm. if people would ever take the time to really 
look at it. So I, I think there's a lot of pluses for it. But, um, you know, all everybody ever does, kind of like the weather, everybody sits around and talks about it, but nobody does anything about it. Yeah, we got lots of knowledge and no action. Well, not no action, but boy, people sure know a lot of stuff and <laughs> yeah. aren't doing a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, that is true. Um, let's talk about how you got involved with your family's business. I mean, obviously, it's your family's business, so it was a, a place where you might go, but not guaranteed. No. Uh, well, um, yeah, I just, you know, I got out of college and uh, went traveling for a while. And, and, where, and where did you go to college? Uh, Sacramento State. What did you study? I studied uh, political science, of all things, so... Uh, so I went there, and then when I got out of college, I traveled. But, you know, all the time I was going to school in high school and in college, I worked at the sawmill during the summers. And when I was in high school and at home, I worked there, you know, cleaning up the mill every day of the week. So um, so I had a good understanding of um, what went on. And so finally, when I was ready to settle down, I went to work full time and and that was right at the time. I mean, the business really prospered for about, oh, I guess, 15 years. And, and that was in the 70s? Well, that was in the, um, I would say, mid-70s ah. to uh, actually the mid-60s to maybe about 19, late 70s, yes, 1979. And then uh, what happened is that um, during those times, inflation was kind of a big deal, and and my father he knew how to how to play inflation. He uh, he could buy trees, he could log uh, log them and sell them. By the time he sold the lumber, uh, the value of what he had bought had gone way up because of the inflation. So it was a great deal, and it worked really well for about you know ten or fifteen years until. Along uh, came 1979, and uh, Paul Volcker became the Fed chairman, and interest rates shot up to 20%, and that was the end of that. And at the time, we had um, we were highly leveraged as a company, owned a lot of timberland, which was no longer economically viable, so we just gave that all back to the banks, to the lenders. It was You kind of hit a wall in 1979? Yeah. And, uh, the, you know, we had large log inventories, which were worth, you know, a half or a quarter of what, <laughs> what they were in inventory for. So it was the old buy high, sell low thing. And so basically we did a workout with our lenders and, and, um, and it, kind of, it was kind of at that time that I got into the management of the company. And mm -hmm. so, but we... We kind of limped along for the next 25 years. Uh, we'd have a good year or two, and, uh, but we were always highly leveraged. So then you'd have a year or, or two where the economy wasn't so good, and you just didn't, you know, we were a cash flow company. We never had the, uh, the ability to just say, well, we'll just take, you know, the next three months off or six months off and come you back when the market's be better. Producing. You had to always produce. How, can you talk about that? How, how much does financial policy or banking influence forestry? Like what drives it? 
Well, uh, it's a huge driver. And, you know, I would say that as an example, the if you look at the Redwood Forest Foundation and the USAL Redwood Forest, what what really made that property available to um, to the Redwood Forest Foundation was the investment strategies of a lot of uh, TMOs. TMOs are timber investment management organizations. <clears throat> and what they would do is they'd go out and purchase forest land and they'd hold it for 10 years and they would... Um, I don't want to say liquidate it, but, well, they did eventually, but they, they maximize the whatever value they could maximize out of it, and they'd sell it. And that's really the, um, from a timber investment standpoint, that's how it works. And it's, some, it's how it works today. And there's <clears throat> some sort of variation of that model is what goes on. So basically, the people that own the USOL Redwood Forest at the time were looking at how they could maximize the value, and they identified uh, Refi as a uh, as a nonprofit uh, community organization as a way that they could probably best uh, realize maximize the value for their clients, who at the time was the Washington State teachers union whatever they were called mm -hmm. and so um you know that's that's how we ended up being able to make that deal and they and of course this organization that was running that was managing the property they had um uh good contacts with the financers in this case it was bank of america and you know, they convinced bank of america that it was a good deal to finance the whole thing and so the you know the <laughs> the good part is is that Refi ended up with a fifty thousand acre forest. Right. The bad part is it costs a lot of money, but you know I think over time it will be seen as a good deal. Yeah, and I want to talk about Refi and the vision for Refi and how that all came into being. But we still have a little bit more sure. of um, your time at Harwood. Yeah, Forest Products is that what it was called? Uh, Harwood Products. Harwood Products. I remember the signs all over yeah. Lightonville. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so in 2008, the economy collapsed. Well, it was uh, 2008, yes. And that basically signaled the end for your company. Well, what we did is, you know, we had our ups and downs. And, and uh, you know, every few years, things would go down. And you could always kind of find the next lender that would help you, you know, get by. But in, And that's what it means to be leveraged. You're uh, operating on borrowed money that you're paying back with the, pro correct. the profits from your operations. That is correct. And so in 2008, when we had the global financial meltdown, uh, which apparently nobody saw coming, we certainly didn't, uh, our lender, who was Wells Fargo at the time, they certainly didn't, and I don't think anybody did. If they did, no one was saying. No one was listening to them. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but what happened is that with that financial meltdown, there was no capital available. And if you were a leveraged company, you were done. And that was us, so that was it. I mean, there was no working out of that one. It was like, okay, if you don't have... Uh, 
if you don't have capital, it's all over. So, that's so it what wasn't happened. the environmentalists who shut down your mill. It was never the environmentalists. <laughs> Never. No. Or the spotted owl. <laughs> or the spotted owl. No. We were uh we were absolutely um I'm gonna use the word victims. I don't know if we were really a victim, but it was globalization. It was globalization and the the world financial picture that that caused our mill to not be efficient enough to survive. Maybe we'll call you collateral damage. Uh, yes. <laughs> Casualties. Yes, we were al- absolutely collateral damage in a lot of ways. All right, so I definitely want to touch on a little bit of your time through the 90s because the reason that I'm talking to you now is because we met officially at the panel at the Willits Museum about your work with Judy Berry and the timber worker alliance with the environmentalists during Redwood Summer, which you were a lovely reality check on <laughs> the, uh, the alliance part of that and what was really uh, the, the goal was to diffuse any violence and have the opposing sides, so to speak, talking with each other to make sure that things stayed peaceful. But you were a small local mill, smaller still big, but smaller local mill uh, in the 90s during what was called the Timber Wars, where there were these giant corporate mills and corporate timber companies just going crazy on the landscape in Mendocino County and and logging um, to infinity, as Harry Merlot of LP used to say. (laughs) They were taking everything, including I was reminded, they did dumpster logging where they went out and took dumpsters into the woods and like put anything that would fit in the dumpster. They would just chuck it in and take it to the mill. And I don't know, they chipped it up and turned it into wafer board. Um, So... I'm really curious if you could talk about your perspective if we're talking about the the sides, right? The different sides of of the what might be called the timber wars, but just what was going on at that time with the environmentalists and the timber companies, but then you were kind of caught in the middle. Yeah. Well, um I guess the I'll start by saying that the environmentalists were not wrong in what they saw going on in our forests. In fact, they were right. <clears throat> And but they weren't the only ones that knew that. I mean, I knew that, um, and the people that worked in the timber industry knew that. But you know, we didn't control what was going on. And in fact, uh, I always remember my father telling me the story about meeting with uh, the guy that was running Union Lumber Company at the time, a guy named Jim Coon. Actually, it was Georgia Pacific who had bought out Union Lumber Company. But it was the Fort Bragg uh, operations of 200 and some thousand acres. And, and uh, what Jim Kuhn told him, he says, you know, bud, he says, um, he says, we're cutting way too much. It's not sustainable. And I know it and we all know it, I, he said. But there's really nothing. So there's nothing I can do about it, because if I want to complain and make a stink, they will replace me tomorrow and just get somebody else in here who will liquidate that forest land so that was uh um that was really what we were all up against not just people managing these companies but um really the workers so while we all knew what was going on basically you had to get a paycheck you had to feed your family and so we're you know we all were kind of stuck in the middle Mm-hmm. And so that was, um, 
but we all knew that. And so I just, I just want to point that out because when uh, the Timber Wars came along, uh, really it was, um, you know, you use the term collateral damage. <laughs> and, and in my relationship with Judy Berry, uh, you know, Judy and I had a, uh, relationship. I, I would call it maybe a professional relationship because that's what it was. And, um, and it was based on she and I really communicating and trusting each other, but that doesn't mean we agreed on things. We did agree with what was going on in the forest, but we didn't agree on how, how you might best um, deal with that. And so, you know, Judy's whole deal was, uh, was protest and confrontation and, and, and physical blockades or physical, direct action. Physical blockades. And, and, you know, we felt like that we were caught in the middle and we were, in fact, collateral damage. And I think Judy probably used those words with me uh-huh. when we had a little discussion about something that. It's like, okay, Judy, right. <laughs> you did something here that uh, we didn't think was too cool. Well, sorry about that, but, um, you know, right. that's just the way it goes. Well, yeah, the tactic of direct action always puts the people who are working in the spotlight, right? They're the, that's the place. She called it the point of production was where the blockade needed to happen. Right. That's the fulcrum point in the, like, get to, back to your political science background, right? That's the powerful place. And so the timber workers who are really, like you said, like not in any position to control what's going on and who probably know, and she used to go to the front lines and talk with them. She, she would joke that it was a captive audience, but what she was saying was exactly what you were saying too, that this is not sustainable and that you're logging your children's jobs. And that we all know, you know, and, and she was able to make contact and create relationships with some of those people that she met on the front lines. And I think the thing that she did that no other environmentalists really were even talking about was their working conditions and, you know, some of the attempts that they made in Fort Bragg to organize with the union and represent workplace issues among some of the mill workers when the company doused them with PCBs and all that. I'm I'm sure you remember all of that stuff. Um, So, I mean, that was a very different take by an environmentalist, I think, but certainly that's the drawback of that tactic and what we're seeing in Jackson State, too, without any law enforcement presence at all and just environmentalists and loggers left in the woods to work it out. You know, it's, it's, it is a, it's, what am I going to say about this? The tactic definitely puts the people with the least power sort of under the most pressure. That is true. And so so I would say that um, uh, when it came to Redwood Summer, although, you know, I, I in virtually all uh, mill and logging workers sided with the big companies, it wasn't because we wanted to side with the big companies. It's because we felt like, that's where we had to go for the best outcome for us. And so, which was unfortunate. And, you know, one of the things when I look at what's going on today, I mean, it's still kind of the same thing. It's uh, the workers that just really, you know, they don't have a place to go. They can't, they can't go against 
the people that are feeding them. Otherwise, they're not going to get fed, right? Right. So, they're going to lose their jobs if they speak out. That is correct. And so it's uh, they're kind of between a rock and a hard spot. Right. And then at the logger panel, I call it the logger panel, that we had <laughs> at the Willits Museum a couple of weeks back uh, with... There were a couple of timber workers who walked off their jobs, Walter Smith and Ernie Pardini, yes. and they faced terrible backlash, even from their families. Well, Ernie from his family, but Walter couldn't get a job, right? even though he's a very skilled timber faller. So, yeah, real yeah. consequences. Yeah, so them. they, you know, they were, um, you know, they were, felt like that's something they had to do, and and I admire them for that, taking that stand, but... For a lot of other people, um, it's a lot tougher deal. And you got to remember, you can take that stand, but somebody's going to replace you the next day. Right. Well, you did work with Judy, though. Yes, you absolutely. Talk about the work you did with her. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, I'll just start by saying that when I first. Uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll start by saying when I first became aware of Earth First, because it is an interesting story, and and you know all I knew about Earth First at the time was that they were a terrorist organization that used monkey wrenching and sabotage and whatever else to mess with people that they didn't agree with. And, and you owned quite a bit of equipment, right? Did Were you worried that Earth First was going to come and sabotage your, your equipment? Well, uh, not that so much because we didn't really own a lot of equipment. We owned a sawmill, but um, the people that worked for us owned a lot of equipment, the loggers. They were just small contract loggers mm -hmm. that lived, you know, locally and hired local people and um so they had the equipment they were the ones really more at risk than we were uh, from the standpoint of sabotage but anyway so that's what we knew about earth first rightly or wrongly right as it turned out wrongly but that's okay that's was the times and um so the first that we knew that they they were around was that they were blockading a timber sale that my family had purchased from the Bureau of Land Management on Elkhorn Ridge, which is uh, northwest of Branscombe. And it really wasn't much of a sale, but, um, you know, all of a sudden we're like hearing, oh, yeah, you know, we got all these protesters and they don't want us to log. And we're like, man, I don't know why they want, <laughs> want to stop that sale because it's really not very good. So it's like, okay, finally we just said, uh, you know, I wasn't dealing with them, but our loggers and for foresters were. And, and we just finally said, look, if, it's, if this is that important to those people, then BLM, we don't care. You go find us another place to you substitute the log somewhere else. And so that's what ended up happening uh, with that particular sale. So you had purchased the timber... And the, the protesters showed up. Earth First shows up on Elkhorn Ridge. Right. Which is in Cotto. It's Cotto Peak. Well, or? yeah, I guess you. it's kind of affiliated borders, Cotto Peak, uh -huh. but it's a long walk. Adjacent. <laughs> um, and so you're like, well, fine. Just find some other place for us to log. And we, Correct. you just swapped it out. We just swapped it out. And, and they so weren't upset about the other place. Uh, well, they probably didn't even know where the other place was. I don't know. Secret but, location. Well, you know, BLM, 
BLM actually had, uh, they owned a lot of checkerboard land holdings, in holdings is what they're referred to as, so they could go anywhere and find something that mm-hmm. nobody was going to be too aware of. Um, well, that seems like a good resolution, too, well, it, I suppose, it was, best it, as it could be. Well, I mean, it was okay for that, but that, of course, wasn't the issue. That timber sale was not the issue, right? I mean, let's right. be honest about I'm just, that. It just sounds like such a quaint little story from yeah. the early days yeah. where, you know, the first blockade happened. Oh, fine, we'll just work it out. That is not yeah. what happens now. <laughs> so then, from that, uh, we started uh, hearing about uh, Earth First in our schools. And... Um, you know, of course, you got to remember what we thought of Earth First, and it's like, oh my God! And it's like, I can remember. It's like, oh yeah, you know, the, our kids were, they were having issues. You know, they were building the freeway down by Redwood Valley, and there were trees cut down, and and stories of kids becoming uncontrollable to the point where their mother had to pull off the road and go, "What is the problem?" Well, the trees were cut down, so they were getting a story in our schools and there were several uh incidences of the same type of same story different incidents and so finally we go well what's going on here you know and we find oh earth first is in our schools and we're like "Uh uh-oh houston we have a problem here and so you know we started pushing back because it's like, I mean, you, you, we're not going to let somebody go into our schools and tell our kids that what their parents do for a living is bad. I mean, that's just not, you're going to get pushed back when you do that. So we. Did uh, you ever find out, like, who was saying what? Oh, yeah. Were uh, they having, like, Earth First presentations or were the teachers the sympathetic te- to the Earth The teachers First? were sympathetic. Oh, oh they yeah. infiltrated. They infiltrated, right. <laughs> and so, so anyway, so we pushed back, and that created this big hullabaloo in our schools, and um, it wasn't real pretty. But at the time, you know, we started looking around at who these Earth Firsters were, and we were recognizing these were familiar faces and we're going well wait a minute um you know your kids are in my kids class your kids play on the same little league teams and soccer teams and so you know you're part of this community and it's like maybe we better have a conversation here and so so we started talking with earth first it was interesting in that we couldn't talk with the schools but we could talk to Earth first. So we started. Interesting. We started talking. And I always like to tell the story that, the you know, the Earth First leader's daughter was my son's girlfriend in fifth grade. It's That's like, so Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. It's like, whoa, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad everyone survived. Yeah. So, um, so we started having these um we started having these conversations. This is where uh, I always want to give a lot of credit to uh, Steve Zweibach, who uh, passed away this last summer. But Steve was just a, um, a community uh, gem. And um, he, he really helped us a lot because he had facilitation skills that could bring people together. And 
and he's got about a probably a 30-year track record of bringing us together with environmentalists but um anyway so we start having meetings we start meeting with our local earth firsters and and we had a meeting or two and pretty soon they go hey you know there's this person we want to bring named judy berry can we bring her to the meeting it's like fine you know i'm whatever i don't care who comes to the meeting i mean bring her along so that's the first uh we ever met of judy and then uh, do you remember where that meeting was yeah it was in laytonville was it at harwood hall no it was at the uh place it's a mexican restaurant right now kind of right beside geiger's long valley market and so we were meeting there i think um I'm not sure. There apparently there was no business there at the time, or right? it was a motel, I think. But not Boomers. Not Boomers. Oh, okay. No, that was Willits. We met at John's place, the bar. Oh yes, <laughs> right. Uh, but anyway, Stomper John's we used to call it, oh, yeah. but it's not there anymore. No. Um, so, anyways, so Judy started coming to these meetings, and. Um, so during that time, uh, we had a little incident in our schools where one of the parents, uh, there's a little book, Dr. Seuss book called the Lorax that was kind of anti-logging and, Truffula trees. you know, they were, uh, kind of making that required reading in the schools in one class. And so this parent said, well, you know, a petition to have that, you know, not taken out of the schools, but let's just don't make it required reading. Well, uh, Judy Berry <laughs> saw that as an opportunity, and she turned that into an international incident. The town that banned the Lorax. The town that banned the Lorax. And we had press from all over the world come to our school board meeting. I was a school board member. <laughs> and um, Wow. And so, and it was at that time that I realized that we were playing a, a game there were different rules than than i had ever dreamt of and of course judy and i you know we you know we could speak to each other I'm like judy you set us up <laughs> yeah but you know that's where it was like well it's just too bad <clears throat> you know it's not that i wanted to do that to you but you're just part of <laughs> uh you're just a part of whatever i'm doing and so <laughs> It's like, okay, that's fine. As long as I understand the rules, then we'll yeah. we'll make that work. So Well and you but you kept working with her. Oh yeah. Well we I mean it didn't get to a point where you were ever felt disrespected or humiliated or No. No, I it just, wasn't personal. It wasn't personal. It was uh this I think I started this by saying that Judy and I had a professional relationship. Well, that's what you call a professional relationship, mm-hmm. you know. It's kinda like I don't know, maybe Putin and Biden, you know, it's like they don't exactly agree on everything, right. but they're not going to nuke each other. Right? right. Like, you know, your role and, and, and I know my role and we know we're going to behave in certain ways and we just got to be OK with that. That is correct. You know, I've watched when we were we did a bunch of civil rights litigation because of what happens to environmentalists out in the woods. And so, well, in Judy's case, the FBI case, right. the lawyers are like <laughs> that with each other. Yeah. It's just like this very professional, uh, collegial relationship. But did but you also kind of liked her, right? Yeah. I mean, we got along fine. It was... Uh, you were like, oh, that Judy Berry is no, always calling no. me. No, no, no. <laughs> it was never that. And, uh, we got along fine. And so anyway, so we had these... Uh, 
you know, these meetings that led to the Lorax, and then, I don't know, these, we kind of had all the meetings we needed to have and quit that, and, and then... You I, all knew each other. We all knew each all other. Dating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it was like, we were cool with each other, and... You knew nobody was going to sabotage any equipment Correct. or yeah, do anything yeah. like that. Yeah. So we, we did uh, we did what a community needs to do. We talked it out and went on with life and didn't have any trouble with each other. And um, so, so then after that, soon after, I kind of forget how long after, but, but probably within the next six to 12 months, um, I got a call from Judy and she said, oh, you know, we're going to do this. Uh, we're going to do this deal called Mississippi Summer in the Redwoods. And I'm really concerned that there could be violence. And could you help with bringing some mill workers and loggers together so we can maybe talk about this and hopefully not it not turn into a violent thing and i'm like well judy there's an easier way i said don't do it <laughs> oh well we're not <laughs> we're doing it so it's like okay well i get it you know so okay i'll i'll see what i can do mm-hmm. and so i i did uh get hold of uh steve's Wyback first <laughs> that's the Your always, best ally always the first call yeah. and um and we got hold of you know all the loggers in the county i was really just looking at some notes that I dug up of all the people that attended those meetings is pretty interesting, uh, group. And so we had, um, uh, we got all the loggers together and Judy and whoever she deemed, um, you know, needed to be there from the, uh, environmental side. And, and we started meeting, and the, you know, when we first started, they were rough meetings. I mean, yeah. our it was, uh, Steve Zweibach used to like to say that our first agreement was that, okay, no one's going to bring guns to the meetings. So that was good, you know. It's like, okay, we can communicate. <laughs> right. We don't have our weapons. Leave the weapons in the truck. Yeah. Although but the environmentalists were never going to bring guns, right? No, but they might bring bombs or hey now or spy. We didn't know. You got <laughs> to remember. You got to remember. You know. Yeah, that's a good point. You yeah. didn't know. I mean, at this at this you're point, you're hearing a lot about them. That's right. Yeah, got at it. At this point in time, it's a different conversation. Yeah. At that point in time, we didn't know. You know. Right. Were they spiking trees? I mean, there was a sawmill worker in Cloverdale got his half his face tore off from a spike. So, yeah, George Alexander. Yeah. So I mean, we're that's that's all we knew. Right. Um, well, did so I know that at some point around this time, the local Earth First group renounced tree spiking. Were you guys paying any attention to that, or did that message get to you? Oh no, that got to us, and I think that was part of what uh, made from my perspective, Redwood Summer, a uh, success, was that, um, as it turned out, other than the bombing of Judy and Daryl, there was no violence. And, you know, we had these meetings, and we started out, it was just us and uh, Jew and the environmental Earth First. And uh, we said, well, you know, there's some other people we need to involved like the sheriff's department and i forget who else but who was it then sheriff was it sheriff shea uh might have been 
I think. And so, but what we did, we said, but we're going to talk this out. We're going to develop this relationship. And then when we're ready, we'll invite the sheriff's department in to be part of what's going on. So we had these meetings and we finally worked out a protocol for how we thought uh, these demonstrations were going to work. And then we brought in the sheriff's department and said, okay, um, (laughs) you get to be part of our of what we're doing now (laughs) and here's what we've agreed to and we would like you to you know agree to be part of what we're doing and basically what we agreed to is that there would be no surprise demonstrations that if the uh, earth first was going to do an an action somewhere show up at a gate and chain themselves to it and whatever um, whoever the logger was would be notified in advance. Uh, that you know that logging crew would basically, if they showed up at the gate, they'd stand aside and let the demonstrators demonstrate, and the press could get there and take their pictures and whatever. And then the sheriff's department would show up and, and haul them off well like a mile down the road, and then they'd let them go. Uh-huh. Loggers would go back to work. The demonstrators would go do whatever they're doing and that's how it worked that was our agreement and that's how it worked and it was uh and so it was cool because the um um you know really the loggers and the demonstrators got to know and appreciate each other as people so it was um it was a good deal yeah and we had um we actually did have some meetings in Humboldt County and I think helped in Humboldt County too. Um, you know, once we got our stick down, um, we worked there a little bit. And so there, you know, the violence level was, well, it didn't happen Mm -hmm. other than, other than the bombing, Um, you know, from a, from a more personal standpoint, the, the, um, the crescendo of the summer was a big demonstration in Fort Bragg and where, um, you know, the Earth First was going to have a big demonstration. And so the uh, our side, you know, we, we didn't sit around and just take it, I can tell you. We organized our own demonstrations, counter demonstrations. And once we learned to play by Earth First rules, it actually kind of got to be fun I always was kind of complimented by that. Like, yeah. thanks for using the tactic. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Now I can, now you understand me. I understand no. you. Well, that, it, and it wasn't always appreciated <laughs> by Earth First either, you know, when we would use their tactics. But it's right. like, hey, you're the one that made the rules. That's We're just right. playing by Got to play fair here. Well, there was a protest by the timber, by the contract logger in Jackson State a few months ago. And I... I mean, that was my reaction. I was like, cool, you guys are doing direct action too, you know? Yeah, no, we, so we figured one one. it's like we better get doing that. And there was a bigger, I think somebody pointed this out at our meeting at the library. There mm-hmm. was a big uh, state initiatives, I think, yeah, Forest, Forest Forever. forever. And, 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 uh, and I th- I'm pretty sure it did not pass. It, it lost by one percentage point. And we like to think it didn't pass because of us because of the direct action we took oh that's that's a point of view i haven't heard but yeah. of course i haven't no, talked with you so it was not lost on us that that mattered uh-huh. and how we dealt with it 
could impact that. And so we're, we're, we're taking credit. Okay. Well, I'm not sure if the legacy of that was so awesome. Well, I don't know about the legacy, but it was at the time. (laughs) Flexing the political power at the time and having a voice, but it would have, it would have strengthened forestry rules and banned clear cutting and so, which is probably a good thing. But that wasn't at that point in time, that wasn't the point. (laughs) Okay. So, um, but anyways, so during this lead up, to um, the demonstrations in Fort Bragg, the Earth First moved their their encampment to Branscombe. And so they were camped out about two miles from our sawmill. Where? Uh, down at Red Bridge, which okay. is just um, two, well, two miles past our sawmill. Was it on BLM land? No, it was on private property. Oh, just somebody's place. Somebody's place. Okay. And they let them camp there. And, and um, so... You know, and that was at the time, I think it was Seeds of Peace were there and they were handling the, um, you know, all the logistics, the eating and the food and the The toilets and the eating. And of course it was, um, um, you know, there it was like, well, there was no alcohol allowed and no meat. And so, but, but the protesters, the Earth Firsters, they could come up mainly kids right that were there but they could come up to the Branscombe store where our mill crew they'd get off work and they'd sit at the Branscombe store and drink beer and whatever and they'd protesters would all come up this went on for like three weeks get their beer and their meat yeah and sit on the store porch and drink beer and just yeah the the meager granola and soy milk just doesn't cut it after a few days and so that went, you know, we gave we gave the uh, the protesters tours of our mill. Nice. You know, we played volleyball, as I think Naomi Wagner pointed out. Uh, the mill workers always beat the uh, Earth Firsters because Earth First had denounced spiking. And if you can't spike <laughs> in volleyball, you're going to get beat. <laughs> so... Um, so it was good, you know. Everybody got to know everybody much better, and really, the night before the big protest in Fort Bragg, you know, everybody's on the store porch. Well, you know, we'll see you tomorrow. You know, right. <laughs> we'll all be going to our separate protests. So that's kind of how that worked. Do you think that Redwood Summer had long-term, made long-term changes to Mendocino County? Um, I don't know. I, I don't, um, I don't know. I think, I think not so much. Um, LP did, they cut and they ran. GP cut and they ran. Palco cut and maybe they got run off, but they're gone so yeah with headwaters though headwaters they weren't able to cut headwaters so that was that was a big deal so um i don't know i mean yeah i i guess that some of the um some of the rules we have now i mean i don't think it stopped anything what was going on then but you have different logging rules now and i think that's redwood summer had something to do Mm -hmm. with that for sure it also had a it kind of had a long-term effect on you right i mean when you talk about what happened with refi well yes um so that's <laughs> that's another story 
You're so adept. <laughs> I have notes. You have notes. Um, yeah, so Redwood Summer, it came and went, and and um, and I just remember at, when it was over, it was like, you know, this was like, I don't regret anything that we I did during Redwood Summer, and it was kind of exhilarating i guess uh, i'm sure everybody felt that way and we all were you know did what we thought we needed to do and felt good about it and but i thought at the end i thought you know i don't ever want to do that again i mean that's enough that's right one summer's enough i'm sure judy felt that way too yeah. after the toll that that it took on it, her yeah it took a big toll on her but um so anyway so then I don't know, a year or two after that, uh, LP made the announcement, Louisiana Pacific made the announcement they were going to sell their 230,000 acres of timberland on the north coast, uh, most of which was in Mendocino County. And there were a bunch of, um, you know, we're all out there going, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, boy, wouldn't it be nice to be able to get my hands on that and uh, and there were a lot of people thinking that, and a lot of people that were on different sides of the Redwood Summer. And so I, I got this phone call from Charles Peterson, who was the 5th District Supervisor, which is the south coast of Mendocino County, or as we refer to him as the Environmentalist Supervisor. And so Charles, uh, and Charles was cool during Redwood Summer. He was great, really. And he always went out of his way to try to bridge the gap between workers and environmentalists. But anyways, Charles called me. He said, said you know, the, this LP land's um, going up for, you know, is going on the market. And there's a group of people, um, you know, environmentalists. And he gave me some names that, uh, and financial people, whatever, that that would like to get together and discuss whether or not we could maybe purchase that property and manage it, uh, you know, on behalf of the community. I said, well, yeah, let's, let's have that discussion. And so, um, so the first meeting was at Henry Gunling's house in out in the middle of nowhere, uh, between Philo and Elk, I guess. Uh, out in the middle of nowhere. Right. Halfway between <laughs> <Philo> and Elk. <laughs> I think I've seen, there's like a, pear, a, a plum orchard out there, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> it's past Tendy Woods yeah. kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. And um, so there were a group of uh, environmentalists. I mean, uh, you know, Bill and Lynn, Bill Heil, Linda Perkins. Uh, From Mika, the Albion Nation. Yeah, Albion Nation, Mika, Wawona. Uh, I'm sure there were another one or two more. Mika had been really involved in the Forest Advisory Committee. Forest Advisory Committee, that is correct. That's another... Another chapter. Another chapter, uh, as was Henry Gunling. And uh, so and we had um, uh, financial people. Uh, Henry was a financial people. We had uh, resource professionals, um, you know, foresters. We had big-time financial people, actually, from that knew how to put stuff together. And so we sat down and talked about it and said, okay, let's, sounds good, let's do it. 
let's buy this property. Let's buy LP. Let's buy LP. That, and, you guys had some chutzpah. Yeah. And, uh, but the only reason we could do it was because we had developed relationships because of Redwood Summer, really. So I, I think that's the legacy in, in my mind. Um, we developed relationships, and it didn't mean that we were ready to sit down and agree on everything because we weren't. Uh, we had a lot of conversations, and uh, and as it turned out, uh, we were just not prepared to make a legitimate offer mm -hmm. on LP. But but that was okay because uh, it was too bad in a way. I'll circle back to that. But but at the same time, we weren't ready. You know, we needed to have bylaws and you know everything else but what more, more important than that we needed to be, we needed to have a conversation about what it looked like what we wanted to do and this is once again thank you steve zweibach mm -hmm. so the business model after you get the forest how are you gonna make money well, to pay your gonna, land payments how are we gonna manage it and those yeah. those were tough yeah. um you know, those were tough conversations, but everybody, you know, we all agreed that that we couldn't do anything without everybody being, um, you know, together mm -hmm. in, in agreement. So it wasn't like a democratic deal where, yeah, if you, you know, you're going to vote on it and whoever wins, wins. It was everybody needs to agree. We call that consensus. Oh, yeah. Consensus. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> And so it was, um, you know, it was. It took environmentalists having to think like Wall Streeters. It took uh, it took industry timber industry people having to think like environmentalists, and so we had to learn. So you know, the 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 trust we had developed through Redwood Summer is that was important because we knew we didn't necessarily agree on everything but we knew we trusted each other enough to know that we could have this conversation and and we could hopefully mm -hmm. get there and, and we did and it took um it took 10 years wow it took from 10 years. the early 90s to the early 2000s that is correct and uh well it was actually i think it was 2007 when we finally made the deal huh okay so but in the meantime mrc mendocino redwood company came in and bought LP. they came in and bought lp and and you know the 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 real bummer from my standpoint of that was that they bought lp for like i don't know 700 and some dollars an acre and if we could have bought lp for that this community organization we would have it paid for, yeah, and we it would be generating funds for the community, and it would be a forest that people would really be proud of, because, as it turns out, that was cheap at the time. Because what happened after MRC bought that is when the Timos. Now I'm circling back to the start of our conversation. Right. So the next big deal was Georgia Pacific. And that's where the Timos came in. And Timos again are timber investment management organizations. So they came in and bought Georgia Pacific, 
And their whole deal was maximizing profits. Well, it didn't matter what they bought it for. They bought it fairly cheap, but they were they knew how to maximize and get every last penny out of that deal. And from then on, so what happened is the value of forest lands just soared. So it was like instead of $700 an acre, you know, you're going to have to pay 1500 or $2,000 an acre because that's how they could justify the value so uh -huh. it was really uh um i don't know missed i guess opportunity. it was a missed opportunity and 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 why could they get why could mrc get it for that cheap and refi the people who were starting redwood forest foundation couldn't we were not a we were not a legitimate organization at the time we were too late mm -hmm. so you couldn't negotiate that you didn't have the muscle to negotiate it no. Did it have anything to do with like what I'm, I'm get what I'm getting at is like how wealth kind of perpetuates itself and how structurally yeah. like communities who want to do this kind of stuff are just not even we can't even get to the table kind of thing. Well, th there's that, and basically, if you have, uh, as Charles Hurwitz said, the the golden rule, right? He who has the gold rules. And I throw a couple Timos in there. That's right. <laughs> it's the, like the financial system. That's exactly right. And, you know, they they have the uh, financing and the wherewithal to do these deals, and community organizations do not. But you actually did purchase Timberland. So how did that happen? Well, that happened because the Timo that bought um, Georgia Pacific – was what was uh, it called well it was called hawthorne timber right and it was owned by the washington state public employees union washington's teachers union and managed by campbell group and so campbell group they knew about um refi and and what these timos do is um you know they they make an investment and they hold it for 10 years and they flip it and that's how that is their business model. So Hawthorne bought it, held it, you know, 10 years is coming up. They're getting ready to flip it. And they looked at Refi and said, well, um, you know, here's an organization that can maybe pay the most money for this deal. It's like <clears throat> the boutique Timberland. Yeah. Um, and so they worked with us. So I, I got to give Campbell a lot of credit for that. I mean, there was some controversy about maybe how they managed things, but they did us a favor because mm -hmm. they actually worked with us and stuck with us, and they brought in the financing, which was Bank of America, and without them, it never would have happened. Now, it turns out that it was a, you know, it wasn't the deal that uh, Mendocino Redwood got, or the Fisher family got when they bought LP, but... But it was a deal, and you could get you could get in the door. You could get ownership over the land. That is correct. No, was Campbell Hawthorne whatever? Were they selling off pieces of GP's holdings? Because you didn't get all of what GP used <clears throat> to own. No, they actually offered us, <clears throat> excuse me, all of it. But uh, it just got to be too big of a. Uh, a bite, and so it's like okay, they backed up and said okay, well it's. Let's pare this down to USOL. So all of it was like 180,000 acres. So we got it down to 50,000, and and ultimately we were able to make that work. And mm -hmm. and 
you know, in addition to Campbell uh, really working with us, uh, Bank of America, uh, they had a green investment fund that, you know, we weren't getting any traction on finding money, and Bank of America finally said, we'll just do it. So I got to give Bank of America. So they just really wanted to do it. They really wanted to do it. Yeah. For their green portfolio. Correct. Um, what about the other hundred and thirty thousand acres? Uh, that eventually got sold to Lime Timber. Got it. And who is the owner now? And uh, I know that Lime Timber has uh, historically had a good reputation for forest management. They basically come from the East Coast, and so I don't really know what they're doing you know out on yeah. the on what they bought um but I, everybody who got their hands on lp and gp's land ended up with really really over harvested land that is correct because <clears throat> they had cut everything they possibly could and then sold it yes so you now own fifty thousand acres of land that has been very severely logged that is correct so looking at what refi's management model is going to be how do you guys approach that well you know you, you do have to balance paying back the loan with um um you know what you can take off the land and so what we could have done if we would have had the deal that the fishers got when they bought lp uh we could have done amazing things out on the uxall redwood forest but we didn't get that deal we got a highly leveraged much more highly leveraged deal and and the things there's two things that have um really made a big difference one is the sale of conservation easements so basically we were uh what refi did was said we're we're going to when we bought the fifty thousand acres it was uh it was a bunch of 160 acre parcels that was called the patents and what we what we did is um we sold the patents to the state and said okay we're going to make it one parcel it's going to be fifty thousand acres and for that uh the state gave refi i forget 19 or 20 million dollars how much did you end up paying for the land? I think it was sixty million. Okay, so you got a sixty million dollar debt that you need to pay. Correct. And you got nineteen million from the state. Nineteen from the state, and then Refi has subsequently been getting uh, selling a lot of carbon credits. So, and I, I'm not closely involved with Refi anymore, but I think they probably got you know, probably that much money again in carbon credits, but they had a $60 million uh, note at 6% interest. So all that was, all those deals were doing was paying the interest. Oh, wow. And so, you know, Refi's still leveraged and, but I think the board's doing a good job. And, you know, I guess one of the things I'll say is that um, with these carbon credits, I mean, Refi's, the whole deal was uh, uh, the the way that the conservation, not carbon credits, but the way the conservation easements uh, were intended to work in this deal is we'd make the deal, we'd sell the easements, pay down the debt a certain amount, and then uh, manage the property and mm-hmm. things would work. And what happened is that at the time, 
uh, the Fisher family, Mendocino Redwood, was a, really did not like the fact that the Redwood Forest Foundation bought this timberland. They, nobody knew we were negotiating it. We kept, I don't know how we did that, but we kept a pretty good secret. And their nose was out of joint. And so, you know, they, they went to the nth degree to prevent us from getting, being able to uh, sell these easements. So conservation easements are basically plans or, or agreements that you won't exploit or destroy the land. It could be that. In this case, it was it was taking all these 160-acre parcels, which theoretically you could have split. And subdivided. Up, subdivided into 160-acre parcels. Not theoretically. You could have and sold them. And so now, we by selling the easements for $19 million, it's one parcel, 50,000 acres in perpetuity. So you have the, you know, all, of course, all the environmental benefits and really social benefits from, from doing that. And so it was worth money. And, and so, that's a state program. Uh, that, is, that was the money came from state bond mm-hmm. uh, money. That is correct. But anyway, so... So what happened is that Mendocino Redwood, um, or the Fishers, um, you know, they they kind of stepped in and and use you know they're billion multi-billionaires and they use their muscle to slow down this whole process and they slowed this process down for several years. Of course, the interest clock was ticking on all that, and so basically. Uh, they didn't stop it, uh, nor did they stop Refi, but they certainly went out of their way to try, and it costs not just Refi, but but really the public, because it's, that forest is being managed for the benefit of the public. It, it cost us all a lot. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's business, and that's kind of the... <laughs> the world we live in. Right. So they didn't like another timber company come into town. They didn't want to compete with nonprofits over that makes sense. <laughs> conservation easement yeah. funding. Yeah. <laughs> so they wanted that conservation easement funding for themselves. That is correct. And they delayed <laughs> Refi getting the conservation easement for five years, which meant that you accrued interest the entire time. And when you finally got the $19 million, it didn't cut down on your principal. That is correct. And you still have to figure out how to pay it off. That's correct. Okay, so <laughs> you so got it. at least I mean this stuff it kind of reminds me of my student loan. Yeah, <laughs> at the beginning yeah. I thought I could pay this off and then no, there's no way. Yeah, there you have it. It's what just, do you do? I mean, how do you Just a few more this? zeros, you know. Yeah, it just keeps going up no matter how much you pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're talking about forests, especially forests that have been ravaged and need help to recover, which is, I think, part of what Ruffy's mission is, is to manage the land for forest health and for the community. That's a really hard place to be in when you have those pressure to have to make money off the land. Well, it it is an issue. And when you come back to, uh, I mean, Refi has a forest advisory committee of which there are several environmentalists that are part of that. And and when they're out uh, making decisions about what to do on the land, they're tough decisions because you've you've got this financial nut mm-hmm. that you have to crack, and and you know everybody wants to slow the cut down and to grow big trees, but um, 
you got to pay the loan. The bills do now. But there are some easy decisions, right? Like when you talk about road building and and when you talk about, um, you know, there there are places that, there are things that you won't do out there, right? Or that they that Ruffy won't do because you're not really involved in it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think you're you're probably leading up to the use of herbicides. And I thought about it, but I know that that's and... been something that Ruffy has talked about. Well, it is something, but Ruffy has made the decision not to use them, mm-hmm. and um, you know I think that's been successful up to this point. But I mean, we'll we'll that that. I don't think that story's completely told yet, but I think I know that they're making a concerted effort to not use hack and squirt, uh, which is a way of killing tan oaks, um, and to con- and using herbicides to control brush. Uh, you know, you can still do it. There's just the other ways are more expensive, and mm-hmm. theoretically, over time, you produce less merchantable timber. But then. You know, there's other um, there's other other value than just traditional uh, the traditional value that a timber company would assign um, to a forest, and so and, and one of them are the tan oaks. And I mean, it was uh, I always like to tell the story, but uh, of course, over time, this was all traditional uh, tribal land and there were various Indian tribes that would go out and use that and uh, we had uh, did a tour with uh, uh, a couple of the tribal people uh, Lewis Hoagland and Lillian Frazier Lillian was Lewis's aunt and Lewis was the chairman of uh, one of the uh, of the um, one of the tribal groups um, and so we went out on the forest and we're driving around and I'm going, eh, you know, this is all great. And, um, but well, we have this problem here in that we have too many tan oaks and, you know, we're trying to figure out how we're going to deal with them. And, you know, the traditional way is you, you know, you hack and squirt them, use poison to get rid of them. And we don't want to do that. And we just don't know what to do. And, and Lillian, who was a tribal elder, Cotto tribe, um, she pipes up and she says, well, we don't think that tan oaks are a problem because, you know, they produce acorns and those are very important. Uh, that's a very important source of, well, food and, you know, to tribal people traditionally and also to migrating animals and animals that live there. And she's like, why do you need to, why do you need to get rid of them? It's like, oh, okay well maybe uh maybe we need to rethink that so i went back to the refi board and i said you know the you know these indian tribes think that we need to look differently at at this and so um the board to their credit just immediately said well one of the foresters said you know i know this place out this eight acres out on this forest it would be a perfect uh acorn grove to dedicate to tribal use and the board immediately said let's do it and so it's um there's eight acre acorn grow that's dedicated to it's called chinkapin springs and got these big beautiful tan oaks and um and basically it's there for whatever 
uh, tribal people want to do with it. And, you know, that's another story. Yeah, now we're starting to get into the future, right? Yeah. So what what is the future of our relationship with the forest? And I'm deliberately not calling it forestry anymore because if you're going (laughs) to call uh, what used to be called trash trees, the the tan oaks, if you're going to call them an acorn grove, then let's call forestry our relationship with the forest and, and how we're going to live with the forest in a sustainable way. Well, I think that is the next step in Refi's evolution. So when when we first bought um, when we when we first bought made the deal to purchase the Usall Redwood Forest, we went out and we did a series of community meetings. Uh, there was I think one in Garberville or Redway actually, and one in Willis, one in Fort Bragg, and we asked the community, you know, what what do they think is important and about what they would like to be involved in or see happen. And they came up, there were three things that the community really wanted to uh, have a say in. Uh, One of them was they wanted uh, access in terms of mainly tourism. and Being able to go spend time in the place. That is correct. The other is they wanted input into how we dealt with the tan oaks because no one liked the hack and the squirt. So people wanted, uh, they wanted input into that to see if, you know, what could be done. And, uh, and the third is uh, everybody agreed that, uh, that indigenous people needed to have a uh, role in what went on out there. And that's what got me taken tribal people uh, out on the forest. And so of those three things, uh, I think probably the most work has been done on the tan oak stuff. And, you know, to Refi's credit, they have not used herbicides yet. I don't think they ever will, but it's, you know, it's, they had to make some tough decisions around that. Um, the tourism is uh, really not happened Um which is too bad, but I think there's starting to be some discussion around that. And that's because of the financial situation, right? The insurance realities? Well, insurance is, yeah. Um, you know, one of the problems we had is when, when Campbell Group, when when Refi first purchased the USAL Redwood Forest, Campbell Group was their management company. And, and you know, they they were just afraid of their own shadow, you know, when it came to letting people out on the land. And so you couldn't do anything without insurance. Well, you know, they got rid of Campbell group and Refi has their own, uh, management group now this, and, um, you know, insurance is still important, but instead of kind of looking at it like, well, why can't we do it? It's like, well, how can we do it? So there's, I think there's opportunity now, and then, of course, there's the, the tribal stuff, and there's been um, kind of hits and misses. I mean, we've had, um, we've had tours. Uh, one of the first tours we had to the Acorn Grove, we had uh, 10 different California Indian tribes represented. And um, it was pretty interesting. It was interesting for me because when we got out and we looked at it and people started talking about it and it, and it got real emotional and I'll just never forget it because it was like these 
tribal people that were out there, they had never had the opportunity from a large landowner, I guess, to do something like this. And I don't know if it was they never asked or no one ever offered, but it just never happened. And it was like this was an this was a huge deal to the people that were out there and there were there were tears flowing. And it was well it just made me realize that we gotta do way more uh for uh tribal people to have uh say in what goes on in our forests. Well, you know, Refi's uh uh, it's one for us, and maybe what we do there can be looked at and yeah. used in in other forests. So, well, Refi's really doing what Cal Fire says they're doing in Jackson State, right? It's a demonstration for us that's supposed to be looking at all of these different best practices. But Refi is really trying to do that, and well, Re- it kind of looks a little different. Yeah, and Refi is. Um, uh, one of the big differences is that Jackson State Forest not only has no debt, but they have revenue from net operating revenue from timber sales. So they can do anything they want. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas Refi really is limited by the amount of debt and the amount that uh, Refi can log. In fact, the logging is not going to support the community stuff out there. I mean, it's going to support paying the debt and, and Refi needs to look for different ways to, um, you know, make the, the tourism and, you know, make provide for access to tribal entities and, and, and they're doing that, but it's a, it's like grants. Yeah. It's a tough road, you know, and everybody's looking for grants. So that's not an easy but you yeah. guys just did get a big grant to do fire treatment work out there with yeah. um, some shaded fuel breaks through uh, in collaboration with the RCD, I think. Yes. You guys are the only people in the county who got access to funds from, from that particular funding source from the state. So oh, okay. well, I, was, I was scanning for Mendocino oh, County, and okay. it, was, it was just you. Well, I knew we got uh, a grant to do that. I didn't know we were the only people, but I think that's great. <clears throat> and what's really great because if I, if I go back to Indian tribes, uh, these shaded fuel breaks, uh, what a shaded fuel break is, is, is it's, a, it's a fire break. And basically, you put them on top of ridges. And what you do is you want to have large trees, an overstory, and then you remove all the brush underneath, or the ladder fuel, as it's referred to. And so when a fire comes up, you can stop it right there and so that what you have to do to maintain a fuel break is you have to you have to keep the ladder fuels out from underneath the large trees well in this case uh, on this land the large trees are tan oaks big and the tan oaks that produce the most acorns are big tan oaks and and the other thing is once you have this canopy then the the ladder fuel doesn't really grow back. That's right. That's right. It kind of suppresses it. It suppresses it. And so the whole treatment of the tan oak to suppress it, it, it actually, over time, it should, once the forest matures, it should be shaded out. Right? That is correct. So the wonderful thing is, is that while, you know, Refi has dedicated eight acres to Indian tribes to go, you know, collect acorns or, or do whatever 
tribal or ceremonial stuff they might wish. There's a 50,000 acre forest that is available to them if they want to use it. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, Refi has made the offer, mm-hmm. you know, we're doing these shaded fuel breaks. I mean, heck, it's all, these fuel breaks are all beside all weather roads. I mean, you, I mean, which means that you can take elders out there and, um, and it's all over these 50,000 acres. I it's love amazing. the idea of, of, of the, the symbiosis between the fire protection and the traditional uses of the acorn trees. It's yeah. kind of a neat idea. No, it's, it's, it's awesome. So it's just, you know, how we, how we uh, get people out there and make it, make it happen. It's exciting, really. And extremely meaningful, as you yes. said, the the way that it touches people's lives yeah. and, and their tribal lives is yeah. really, it matters. Well, okay, so where do we go from here? We've touched on the past, the present, and the future. <laughs> well, <clears throat> um, I think there's one part of the future that we haven't touched on, and that would be, um, let's call it lack of milling capacity. Ooh, interesting. In uh, Mendocino County. So, in you know, back in the day, um, there were two large pulp mills. I mean, world class pulp mills in on Humboldt Bay. There was a that was L P and Simpson. Uh, yes, L P okay. and Simpson. Uh, there was um, well, I'm trying to think. There were a couple cogen power plants around uh there was a chip exporting facility and so the point is that there was an infrastructure that really added value to um forest products and so not only that there were a whole bunch of sawmills there were sawmills everywhere and there were there were sawmills all over the county yeah. well back to the tp burners right yeah I mean, you see them everywhere you see them everywhere. like vines there, growing on them now. yeah there was a sawmill there and so so the challenge is is that there is just not the infrastructure here well i should go back ukiah had masonite corporation um, i remember the smell yeah yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh and so none of that exists anymore. So, and everywhere else where you have a, a vibrant forest products industry, you have all these things. And so like the closest thing you have here is uh, Mendocino Redwoods pellet plant. So that, that. Which is quite mini compared to the Samoa plants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, so you don't, so there's a lot of value that cannot be realized because of that. And in fact, uh, one of the big problems is if you own a small sawmill, I happen to think that there is a role for very small producers. I, mean, I think I said earlier that, you know, you got to have low costs and high recovery, but, but if you're, there is an alternative to that. You could be a very small player. Uh, I think Willits Redwood Company and Willits would be a, a perfect example of that. It's a super high quality product. That is correct. And you can make that uh, work. And so what I think is that 
that might be the future here. Mm -hmm. Small operators. Small operators, kind of like Willits Redwood. And, um, you know, more of those is it's still a big disadvantage not having a place, you know, to go with your waste, with your Right, the economy of and, scale. I think they're running into that with biochar. It's just too expensive on the scale that people are doing it. Well, biochar is a whole nother conversation. And uh, what I'd say with biochar is, is that if you really look at the economics of biochar, uh, the economics are there already mm -hmm. and i'll just give you an example um so what they've shown with biochar is that if you read it can reduce water usage by you know maybe a third so if you're uh say an avocado farmer in say santa barbara county and you can reduce your water usage by a third and that water you're paying 600 and some dollars an acre foot for it. There's a big economic value to that. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is, is that you got to convince that avocado farmer that you really can do that. And, uh, but, but it really will result in that savings. It really, yeah. really will. But I mean, the studies show that it does. Mm -hmm. And so if you can use that and you extrapolate that to the Central Valley with all the crops, mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, what's it worth to reduce water usage by a third in California? And then on top of that, fire is a big deal. So to produce the biochar on an industrial scale, uh, you'd need to go out in the forest and thin. And so all of a sudden you're putting economics into forest thinning in this, I see in this new infrastructure bill that the biden got passed there's i don't know several billion dollars for to work on for the forest thinning, that's right and so if you can add some other economics to that so then there's more with public economics public subsidies well that's actually one part of the future that we haven't touched on is climate and how that's changing yeah. everything in the forest right and so the other the other piece of that is directly to climate is because when you go and you thin the forest you're growing bigger trees and you're sequestering more carbon and that's a big deal i mean you sequester carbon by putting like biochar in the soil but you're also sequestering more carbon by growing larger trees so Which redwood have has a particular gift yes they grow so fast and they so sequester a lot so there's a lot of economics in that but nobody wants to go there i guess I, I don't you know i don't know why but you mean in terms of the thinning or uh, yeah in or terms of climate in terms pressures? of uh fire suppression in terms of carbon sequestration in terms of water uh availability so Okay, what's it? Uh, what's the better deal to uh, have a third more water available to California by putting biochar in the ground or by building another dam? Your choice. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people want to go there. Yeah. At least a lot of people want to survive the climate crisis. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to take ideas like that, I think. But 
that this conversation we've been having is sort of makes logical sense according to the rules that we've been living with for the last you know couple centuries but it seems like those rules are getting ready to get turned on their head with climate and the impacts that will be happening in the redwood region so uh, yeah i don't i don't know and a lot of people are talking about what kind what kind of thinning and what kind of carbon impacts does that have and how, do the, how does the fire really affect the ecosystem and about the drying and the warming and, you know, how's that going to affect the, the redwoods? And is Refi having these conversations? Uh, Refi is having these conversations. And what I think Refi would hope to do would be able to demonstrate these things. Yeah. And, and, and we would hope that Jackson State Forest would be demonstrating these things i mean it's jackson demonstration state forest and so um both, I, both of those things demonstration and state for it's a publicly owned yeah. place that's fifty thousand acres as well it's kind of like ruffy and jackson state yeah. have it's a totally different reflections of each totally other totally different state than you yeah. saw but there's a lot that can be is in much better shape than you saw oh yes oh yes interesting yeah i mean it's uh it's a fabulous forest I mean, I mean, you may quibble over how they're managing, but it's, I do love it. <laughs> it's a fabulous forest. Yeah. Yeah, it feels really vibrant and alive. It is in lots of parts of it for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Art Harwood, thank you. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and um, you know, it's kind of interesting to talk about old times, <laughs> which is what we've been doing. <laughs> I know. These stories, we just have to preserve them somehow or learn them. I learned a lot in this conversation. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Good to be here. (laughs) That was Art Harwood, recorded on November 10th, 2021, in conversation with me, your host, Alicia Bales. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I've just been hired at REFI to be their program director. My job is to be a catalyst for the community to make real the vision of Refi's founders, create a community forest to benefit both the land and the people. If this conversation with art or the idea of the community forest has planted a seed for you, please get in touch. You can reach me at unmanageablemendocino at gmail.com. You can find out more about Refi at their website, rffi.org. And listen here for more episodes about the astonishing landscape-wide restoration efforts happening across northern Mendocino County and southern Humboldt. Not just by Refi, but by a mosaic of adjacent and visionary land stewards, including the Intertribal Sinkyoon Wilderness Council, Lost Coast Forest Lands, the Conservation Fund, State Parks, Bureau of Land Management, Sanctuary Forest, and more, all moving heaven and earth to figure out how to heal the damage that's been done by extractive forestry, protect the land from catastrophic wildfire, restore watersheds to recover wild salmon runs, and support Native people reuniting with their ancestral homelands. Have you heard about what's going on up there? You're going to be amazed. Many thanks to Art Harwood for the extraordinary conversation. And thanks to Zach Borden, whose song Stumptown is the theme music for this episode. I'm Alicia Bales, and I'll be back soon with another episode of Unmanageable, news from the unruly people and places of Mendocino County, California. If you'd like to be in touch with questions, comments, or story ideas, send me an email at unmanageablemendocino at gmail.com. You can make a financial contribution to keep this podcast going by following the PayPal link in the episode summary. 
Thank you for listening.